So welcome. This is the Sex and Ethics podcast. For those of you listening for the first time, we like to say sex really happy and ethics really serious. But but actually, we can sometimes be sex and ethics (laughs) too. I'm Sharon Lamb. And I'm Madeline Brooks. And today we have for the first time a guest on our podcast, Judith Levine, who is co-author with Erica Miners of a new book, Feminist and the Sex Offender. Judith has been writing about sex, gender, feminism, politics for 40 years. And I originally came across her work in a book called My Enemy, My Love, Man-Hating and Ambivalence. Anybody who <laughs> writes about ambivalence is a what? What a fantastic title, by the way. In Women's Lives was the end of the, to this subtitle, Man-Hating. <laughs> and in fact, when I wrote it, when it was published as a paperback, the word man-hating was taken off the cover because it stopped people from reading it. People told me that they couldn't have it on their desk at work. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. What it was then called, it had another name. Here it is, the paperback. It's changed to Women, Men, and the Dilemmas of Gender. Yeah, I saw that on there, and I was thinking, that's not the book I remember, but lucky for you, it got republished again and again. (laughs) So anyway, she's won an award for another book called Harmful to Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex. That's 2002, right? And she's written many pieces for Harper's, New York Times, Salon, and in Vermont, she had a great column in the alternative newspaper, Seven Days. Um, Is there anyone else place you're writing for regularly now? Yeah, now I'm writing more for Boston Review, N Plus One, some for The Intercept. Mm. Intercept, getting a lot from them lately around the election, for sure. Mm -hmm. Judith? One of the reviews of one of these books called you a post-feminist, and I was like, what? I totally disagree. You are staunchly feminist, but why don't we just start off with you saying what kind of feminist you are, because that's kind of what this book is about. It's about different kinds of feminism and how to approach sex offense. So what kind of feminist are you? From doing this book... I gave myself a new name, which is abolitionist or abolition feminist. And the reason for that name is that in response to the great upsurge in uh, recognition of violence against women, harassment of women, you know, all of the terrible things that are that happen to women ordinarily in everyday life over the last, I guess, 10 or even 20 30 years since the 1990s, many feminists have turned to law and order and to punitive responses to this, the uh, aggressions, unwanted aggressions against women. And we see that that really hasn't worked. And I think that ideologically and in a very practical way, there's not a lot of difference between state violence and the violence that individual men and women do to other women, gay men and trans people. The other way that I would I call myself an abolitionist feminist, which intersects with intersectional feminism. And that's an idea that we don't just care. One cannot just care about women's rights or women's lives, that every person is in a situation that includes his or her race, ethnicity, geographic situation, migration status. Everyone is situated And so the reason for abolitionist feminism is to recognize that the state apparatus of punishment is particularly brutal to people of color, has really destroyed individual lives, family lives, and community lives. And to me, feminism is about opposition to all dominations. That's economic domination, sexual domination, gender domination. And so it's impossible for me to think about feminism only to be about women. Yeah, it's really hard to argue with. Yeah. But, (laughs) but is there no special consideration of women when one's a feminist? And is, and even though this is good work to be doing of orienting yourself as a feminist to the fair and just treatment of sex offenders? Yes, there is a special consideration of women. And by women, I mean anyone who calls 
herself a woman, whatever her body happens to be. That being embodied as a woman puts you in a particular situation in the world of vulnerability and of certain powers as well. And so, and also in terms of violence makes you vulnerable uh, to, to particularly to sexual violence. Furthermore, to me, feminism, one of the several sine qua non of feminism is the body, is freedom of the body, reproductive justice, mm-hmm. the ability to live existentially equal to men depends on our ability to control how our bodies are used and what we decide to do with them. So, so the second part of your question, um, how does a feminist relate in particular to sexual violence against women or to people who are convicted of, accused or convicted of crimes against, sexual crimes against women or sexual crimes at all? I don't know that, I mean, I, there, there are many people who consider themselves feminists, mostly women of color, who don't see a separation between the ways that women's, women's lives are controlled by the punitive position of the state as well. And I do think that the same kinds of panic about sex, belief that sex is a separate category of life, different materially, ethically, politically than everything else, that sexual violence is necessarily and always worse than any other kind of violence or any kind of battery or abuse of children, for instance. I think that's all, it's a sex panic. And I think it's probably originally has a lot to do with the growing power of women and growing self-recognition of women as players in the world certainly coincides with that historically. These are very complicated strands. And I don't think that, as we say in the book, we don't accept justice injustice to some as justice to others. Women, and I think that's true of all, the entire carceral state, Mm. that the only response that we have to make things right is to punish a person. And I don't agree with that. I don't, I think accountability is different from punishment. So the ways that sex offenders are punished so much so much more brutally, so much more a whole, you know, whole lives destroyed by the laws, uh, so much more restrictively, so much more discipline from anybody else who commits any other kind of crime, no matter how heinous, has to do with our sense that sex is somehow, you know, this massive power in our lives, which it is, but that it is worse than, better than, separate from, different from Mm. everything else. I know for our listeners, I just wanted to make verbal some of Sharon's and I smiling or nodding along while Judith was just talking there, because I think this feels really uh, intuitive for us, the way that you're talking, Judith. But I'm wondering if you could speak to how that separation of sex offenders maybe can perpetuate this larger system of violence. Yes. For those who don't know, there's an entire regime, uh, which we call the sex offense legal regime in the book. Other people call it that too. Everyone knows about the sex offender registry. That is everybody who has ever been convicted of a sex offense. I I mean, can I just uh, express, I just, I hate that. I I hate it from the beginning. I hated Megan's law from the beginning. I mean, it just, perpetuates the stupidest stereotypes of Mr. Stranger Danger always points people in the wrong direction in terms of prevention. I mean, I'm not even speaking from your perspective of outrageous uh, um, uh, ways in which we treat uh, people um, who committed the minor sex crimes, which of course was in this great book, that novel uh, by Russell Banks, uh, Memory of Skin, Lost Memory of Skin, really great book if you want but I'm just thinking of just the the way that you know I just hate that idea of like there's no place to live for somebody once you've done a crime I've always felt that way about those um, registry things I don't know I just thought that our audience would also like to hear a little emotional outburst for me they hadn't for 15 minutes yeah (laughs) right I mean that it points people toward this idea that the street is dangerous that strangers are dangerous and you know more than 90 percent of 
child abuse, and it's supposed to protect children, is done by people in their families, people who live in their households, people who are close to their families and close to them. So not only does it set up the world as a dangerous place, it promotes a fantasy of the family as a sanctuary from violence, (laughs) whereas we know that the family is one of the pressure cookers of violence against spouses, women, you know, children, everybody. So, and children who are being abused sexually, there are some who will not come forward because they know what will happen to their father or uncle or brother, which may feel so much so disproportionate, even if they don't conceive of it that way, but so much worse than, you know, than what's happening. And then, as you know, children who are abused have complicated, complicated feelings toward their abusers they may also love them as an uncle or a father. And so, so it, yes, it directs attention in precisely the opposite way that it should. And then also it, it affects the lives of the families of the people who have committed these offenses as well. The children are mm-hmm. harassed in school. As you said, they can't live anywhere. Their houses are burned down. Their parents are, are, are murdered. Uh, their parents can't, the father can't get a job. And so they live in poverty. So all of these yeah. things make it possible for people. I mean, I, I actually know of somebody whose uh, son got out of jail for what I thought was a minor sex offense. And he was married and went through all the therapy and all that sort of thing. His wife, a social worker, was kicked out of her job because the social work system said, we don't let our clients live with former sex offenders. So how can we have a social worker live with a former sex offender? I mean, so it, was, it went beyond his crime, even though he had served time and he was out and had done all his therapy and things like well, that. Well, what I think your, your example kind of illustrates for us, Sharon, is the fact that there's no, in this system um, that you talk about in your book, Judith, there's no opportunity for healing or growth for these people, which is against what our, I think our intentions are as humans with engaging in this kind of punishment. If we go back many, many, many years, right? To like, supposedly it's supposed to be a rehabilitation system, but it actually doesn't allow that to happen. It can sometimes double down on some of the ways that this impacts someone's life. Oh, you know what else? So I was actually doing an evaluation of somebody who had been convicted of a sex offense and served time of it in order. And I was doing the evaluation because uh, he wanted to have some more time with his daughter. This was not the person he had committed the offense against. And I thought, thought to me, after my clinical judgment and testing, lots of testing, of course, I thought he was doing pretty well and I thought his daughter would be safe with him. So I took out that thing called the static and you write about this, Judith. <laughs> I forget what else. The static, which is the one instrument that supposedly says whether somebody is going to recidivate. That just means do their crime again. When I went through that, there was no way somebody who had committed a crime could get a low score on it because you get all these points for having committed a crime. So, so it doesn't work. You can never heal and use that instrument. You can never change and use that instrument. And I think, Judith, you said that even the person who wrote that instrument has some doubts about it now, too. Yeah, Hansen, he did a study of recidivism among sex people with sex crimes and other people. And what he found is what many other criminologists have found over many years, which is that desistance, that is stopping doing crimes, is the norm. After 10 years, most people do crimes when they're young. If people start to have a job or a family, another reason not to have the sex offense registry, they are less likely to commit crimes. And so this idea of this called the static 99, and you're right, it gives you all these points for having done a crime, which is true of the entire so-called psychological diagnosis of the sex offender, which is now considered among the, in the sex offense industry to be a psychological diagnosis, whose primary symptom is that you have done a sex crime. So it's completely tautological, and it makes it impossible to leave on the other side. But what you were saying before, Madeline, about the criminal legal system, in Western history, the criminal criminal system or prisons have 
have swung back and forth between being primarily punitive and being primarily rehabilitative. And there's always been a mixture of these two things, and there's a, a deep mixture of them in the sex offense world. But if we really want to get rid of sexual violence, or violence at all, which is the putative aim of our system, the system that we have fails at every single level. It does not work for the victim. Often a victim of sexual violence or any kind of violence will think that the prosecutor is her lawyer. The prosecutor mm -hmm. is not her lawyer. She often doesn't get to talk to the prosecutor after a certain point. If she doesn't want to bring charges, too bad, the state is going to bring charges anyway. And furthermore, she never really gets to talk to or confront the person who has harmed her. The person who does the harm never gets to take real accountability. He cannot apologize because that's an admission of guilt. He doesn't get to have this exchange with the person he's harmed until maybe very, very much later, many years later, if ever. His job as a criminal defendant is to say that he's not guilty and his lawyer's job is to prove that he's not guilty, even if he is guilty. And I mean, I know many people who've been in prison who hold on to the idea that they didn't do it, or if they did it, it wasn't really their fault, and that wasn't that bad. And furthermore, feeling very put upon by being in prison, which is a terrible, brutal, and violent place to be, and certainly doesn't make anybody better. It's a pathogenic kind of environment where people have to look out only for themselves. People who do sex crimes have a deficit of empathy ordinarily. And a, a prison is a place where you cannot feel for anybody. You have to just mm -hmm. take care of number one. So again, it's a way that it just perpetuates violence rather than ending violence. I, I wonder if we can um, put off till more the end of the podcast talking about the transformative process that you describe in the book, because I want to circle back to some of the things that came earlier in the book so that people understand some of the other points you make that are excellent. And that's that sort of broadening of the category of sex crimes so that it's overly inclusive. And you just sort of, I think Matt and I might both have some mixed feelings about some of those because, and you too probably, about loving the Me Too movement in certain ways, but not if it's sort of elevating certain things to crime level. But you write about that when you talk about hyperbole of rape adjacent or cyber rape um, attacks. And, but also about just how uh, many things that the three of us would consider within normative sexual practices have been criminalized throughout history and how norms change all the time. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, the dangers of this broadening definition of what's a sex crime. Yes, as you, you just said, many uh, behaviors that and identities that were formerly considered criminal, such as homosexuality, are now accepted as normal or certainly tolerable. And, and people were put in prison for that. I mean, it wasn't just opprobrium, <laughs> it was punishment. Mm -hmm. Many things that used to be considered misdemeanors or just kind of creepy behavior, like flashing in the park, have been elevated to, in some places, felonies if, it's, if you've done it twice or three times. And the punishment, being on the sex offender registry, even if you don't serve time, is, as we've said, quite disproportionate to the offense. On the there's more and more. There's a lot of, yeah, and being called a sex offender, which is a kind of banishment from civilized society. There are many kinds of things that feminists were called by their critics carceral feminists. And the word carceral comes from the same root as incarcerate. And it, it, it is that law and order punitive orientation. That carceral feminists would like to criminalize or certainly punish more strongly than they're being punished now. Some of those would be, for instance, sexual harassment at work, stuff like uh, having sex without a condom and not telling the person, porn, what do they call it, revenge porn. Wait, wait, uh, a, minute, wait a minute, what do you think about that? Somebody who, because it was just in a recent TV show, I don't want to say what, because it would be a spoiler, but there was <laughs> a huge theme on this really great show about a woman calling it a rape mm -hmm. when somebody she was having consensual sex with, she discovers after that, took off the condom in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really terrible thing to do. 
<laughs> um, Good. But is putting this person in jail going to make him like, you know, a considerate lover in the future? But can I you call it rape, though? Or is your um, issue, well, I mean, is I think not only does this thing uh, rape adjacent, in fact, this very act is what some feminist legal scholars have called rape adjacent. Calling it rape adjacent not only, I think, reifies or sort of solidifies as one particular thing, what is actually a pretty complicated act, I would say, because it's done in the midst of consensual sex. So there's, it's kind of half consensual and part of it is not consensual, but it also trivializes what rape is. Rape is to me any kind of sex that the person does not consent to. And so you, as you're saying, she did not consent to this. You know, I, I just, I want that person to be held accountable. But I don't think putting him in prison is the right way to hold him accountable. And I don't think it's going to change him. And if we really want to get rid of sexual violence, we need men to change and we need the culture to change. You know, there has been a a decrease in sexual crime. And, you know, some people would say that's because we put people behind bars for a much longer time than we used to. There doesn't, there is no correlation between longer prison sentences and less crime. But I think feminism has made a huge difference. You know, you used Absolutely. to get on that way and people would grab your ass no matter who you were. And that just doesn't happen as much as it used to. And it's because feminism has made it culturally intolerable. You know, it's just something that's not done. You have to be pretty crazy to do it now. You used to just be a regular guy and you could do it. And so I, and I, I thought that nobody was grabbing my ass because I'm an older woman now, but I guess, uh, I guess you're saying there's a whole shift in the culture. Well, that's Madeline who's younger. <laughs> uh, well, you don't, have the pre, you don't have the experience, you know, in the, of being a woman in the 60s or 70s, when I can tell you. Yeah, I think it's, it, you're definitely right on with having these things happen less. I think women are experiencing similar levels of violation but it's taking a different form that I could argue could be less harmful right so maybe instead of grabbing the ass it is more like verbal comment but it definitely is changing and I think that's part of the way that the patriarchy operates it's very sneaky and it will um, figure out a way to express itself regardless of what feminism is trying to fight against. I assure you there were verbal comments back then too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And they're probably were significantly more aggressive than they are now. Yeah, um, it's resilient and it yes. finds its way. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you, Judith, is, you know, it has. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you is why do you think these carceral feminists are so significantly arguing for the incarceration of these people? What What's your judgment of like, why are they so interested in this way of punishing sex offenders because it's the only air to breathe because it's so hegemonic in the culture Mm. that people can't think of anything else to do for anything kids are truant put their parents or them in prison you know kids do like some stupid mischief in school call in the police so we don't know any we have now come to a point where any social problem any individual problem any kind of misbehavior bad relationship the only thing we know to do is to punish it Mm. so carceral feminists are just like everybody else they're in the culture and it takes a kind of resistance and a kind of much deeper critical thinking and also probably experience if you're a black woman you live in a community where your brothers and, and fathers have been imprisoned and so you see it, you know it, you know what it does to your, to your life and to their life. But I wanted to add to your answer, Judith, because you're saying that because we punish everything, all, all bad things from the little to the, to the horrific. But I do think there's, there's a history of, of men not being held accountable for their crimes against women and girls. And you're right, it's the only way to hold them accountable right now. It's the only recourse. But there is that, that pressure to hold somebody accountable when you have some power in this system to fight rape. Well, I think we should hold people accountable for real aggression. And one thing you were talking about before is in Title IX, probably the three of us would agree that many of the things that uh, students, male students are being called on the carpet for or being, you know, sanctioned for are misunderstandings in trying to figure out how to have sex, that some of it is really aggression. Some of it is, you know, ri- you know, 
drunk frat guys who are dragging girls upstairs and, and having sex with them that they don't want. But then there are also cases of not people not communicating with each other. And so those are need to be held. People have to be held accountable for them. So I think we sort of skipped the accountability piece. You know, we went from no accountability to harsh punishment and didn't figure out in between how really to hold people accountable, seriously accountable, not just to the person they've harmed, but to anybody else who's been affected, which I think you could argue is all women. When somebody gets sexually assaulted, you walk around in fear. And Mm -hmm. that's the political part of it. It's a political issue that has to be dealt with politically as well as individually. So and that's why I say feminism makes a difference. If, if feminism really makes it un, you know, unacceptable. I think there's some, go ahead, Madeline. One yeah. thing in the way that you're talking, Judith, is that it seems like some of these carceral feminists are unable to kind of imagine an alternative right now because that law and order style of punishment is so present in our society. And that maybe other folks with different types of experiences, I know you mentioned Black women who have so many of their loved ones who are in prison or jail right now, were were maybe able to articulate a possible alternative. And that's a really big stumbling point for us right now is figuring out what else could this be? Yeah, I got a call from a, a journalist who's writing a piece about two really awful sexual assaults or not almost assaults. She woke up in her bed naked with this man standing over her, touching her. She screamed and her children came and rescued her and the guy set and chased the guy out of the, out of the house. And then there was another aggression that she felt she could do nothing but call the police. There was no, she had no other alternative. And so she called me and said, I can't think of what else to do but to call the police. And that's what the, the whole defund the police movement is about, is that we call the police to do a lot of things that they are not equipped to do mm-hmm. and causing more harm than the, in addition to the harm that's already been done. So who is this guy who breaks into somebody's house and touches a woman in her bed? Can I mean, there's even the question is, can a person like that even be held accountable if he is crazy enough to do it? You know, maybe what he needs more is, you know, maybe he needs, you know, a, a lot. You are entitled. You know, what? Yes, there is. Entitled, entitled and not fearful of punishment. I mean, the, the fact is we might overpunish small crimes, but we certainly underpunish rapists. I mean, so few of them actually go to jail. You know, that I, I mean, I think actually that's worth taking apart. If you talk to any, any criminal lawyer, any lawyer really, you know, the first thing they learn in law school is that the, the criminal, the, the legal system is a sieve. It starts with everybody who is, has a, a complaint made against them or any, any call into the police. It looks to see whether the person, you know, at every level, is there any evidence of it? Can we find any evidence of it? Is there an actual thing we can charge this person with? And then they go through, you know, grand jury, looks at the evidence, decides whether or not this is a prosecutable crime. And then, you you know, you have, I think, proper constitutional protections of, of criminal defendants. Can you actually prove a person guilty? And so... The number, I've looked at this, like the number of rapes that are finally convicted compared to, let's say, homicides. And it is true that there are fewer, that the percentage of rapes that do not end in conviction are higher than other violent crimes, but not that much. The reason is that there is this sieve and it is hard to prove a violent crime against somebody. And then we don't know how many people there... The, Biggest number of exonerations of, of false accusations are related to to sex, and the and the the by far the biggest number of false accusations in which there is no crime have to do with accusations of child sexual abuse. So that's not to say that there is not a lot of child sexual sexual abuse, or that people who do it need to be reformed held accountable and all the rest of it. But the idea that rapists are all going free, I think has to be unpacked. Some rapists are going free. Some people who do all kinds of crimes are going free. 
And I actually do still believe that it's better to have some guilty person go free than to imprison an innocent person. Um, I just want to say on behalf of victims right now about this transformative process, since we keep going back to the restorative justice and transformative process. And I guess I just want to ask, does it ask too much of victims? Because I, and I know you do too, want to say that, that a victim has a right to their anger not just to have their perpetrator be accountable, but they have a right to their anger and their, um, and their wish for revenge. And I just worry that it puts too much social pressure, if this were to be the way things went, on victims to, I don't know, be good victims, to be caring, to be the ones who go at, you know, to the execution and say, no, no, I don't want this the murderer who murdered my whole family to, I mean, I'm against capital punishment too, but of course we've glorified the, the parents who, we, we glorify uh, forgiveness. The, uh, it's a Christian country. Um, and I think I'm just worried about, mm. not, that, not that the victim would get her, get what she wants through the prison system either, but I, I just don't, I'm, I'm worried about the opposite. Am I, yeah. Well, uh, there's a few things to know about this. First is that no victim is required to do restorative justice. Completely comes from the victim's wishes. Many people say, "No, I want this guy to, you know, be prosecuted and go to prison." The other thing is that I think that in restorative justice, there may actually be more opportunity for the victim to be angry, express her 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 rage, her confusion, her hurt. The emotions are not, there is no way that the victim is required to be nice. In fact, she gets to yell at a guy that she probably in the criminal legal system will never get to yell at, will never get to confront face to face. And it's a powerful thing for the harm doer, for the perpetrator to actually have to face his victim. So number one, emotions are not a good basis for public policy, but they are extremely important in the process of making, of making a person whole after harm has been done. They're extremely important. It's a relationship. A, a, a violent crime is an act of relationship, bad relationship. And restorative justice brings back harm done and harm felt into relationship. And it's a kind of relate. It's and it's a really tough process. So nobody's forced to do it. I don't know whether it'll never be the only thing we do. And then the the victim also gets to have a say in what will make her feel whole. What will restore? What will repair the harm? Because it is, as you said, some people will feel really good to have their guy go to prison. People do get out of prison, though, and there's the problem of fear when that happens. And we can't possibly put everybody in prison forever. So she gets to talk about what she needs. She doesn't get everything she wants, but she gets to talk about what she needs to feel repair. And I that get it. I, I still feel knowing women and knowing socialization and the pressures for forgiveness and being good and being kind and sweet and kind and forgiving and that... I, I still think there's a, that there's a, a pressure for that. I think it's hard for a woman who, you know, to speak her heart and say, I want him to burn. I don't think that um, forgiveness and kindness are the same or sweetness or passivity or docility and forgiveness. You don't even actually ever have to forgive the guy, you know, if he's held, you know, so. But, but, but Judith, what you're not understanding, I'm not criticizing the system of, of what is expected. I'm saying I know women. No, <laughs> I, I know I, how I, they will be in that no, situation. I totally understand what you're saying. But so a good circle keeper or whatever the restorative justice person is, not only allows, but encourages the person who's harmed to really speak her heart. And so I don't, I mean, who knows whether this kind of process might empower women to, to speak their anger, to express their anger and to demand accountability for harm done to them. It supports that. Whereas you're talking about women just kind of in life. I mean, it's not, it's a, it's quite a formal sort of 
methodical process. Uh, it's not just you put two people in the in the room and the woman, you know, is just her natural docile passive self. I've done couples counseling, <laughs> and on both people, sides of the couch. Yeah, right. And so, in a safe environment, people can speak what they feel. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm feeling really similarly, Judith. And I also think about what so many survivors talk about how their sense of power or control has been interrupted or disrupted as part of this process. And so I think the idea of restorative justice, while I understand Sharon's concerns, and I think it would be really important to intentionally think about some of those socialization forces, could be really helpful because it does allow a a survivor to kind of lead her own justice process especially because so many of the folks I talk to are so mad at the justice system itself that I think it compounds upon that anger um, that is already present from the initial violation. Interestingly, the people who have the largest number of feminists who began in a sort of carceral framework and who have changed their minds are the people who deal with domestic violence. Because that would be me. At <laughs> this question of being disempowered by the legal system, a person who's already been disempowered is further disempowered. The domestic violence itself is disempowering, and then her power to make any decisions about how this relationship should go forward, what does she want changed, what should be done, what are the other exigencies like economic, fatherhood, all of these other things get to be considered. And there are a fair number of people who, Lee Goodmark is sort of a prominent DV lawyer, who uh, has come around to being a leader in restorative justice for this very reason. Um, She said, we felt that if we made it illegal, it would go away. And then had case after case after case in which women felt that they were being railroaded by the criminal legal system to bring charges that they didn't want to. And these are some really, I mean, you've seen it as a person who worked, worked in DV, like really, really horrible, horrible kinds of abuse. Maybe the fantasy that this guy's going to get better, the relationship's going to get better is just that. But it's something that woman needs to be helped to, to get to and taking away her power to, to run the process is only putting her in a, a deeper hole. Hey, while we have a little time left. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that chapter on religion and sex. It maybe has something to do with my fear of this transformative justice process. You know, I think you write eloquently about the way evangelicals will try to take sex offenders back into the fold, you know, while at the same time they're punishing their LGBT parishioners for just being sexual people or, you know, uh, girls who had sex before marriage and and the sort of contradictions in that. I don't know if you have more to say than what I just said in the book, but I found that chapter pretty fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is, you just, you have just articulated the, the contradiction, which is that if you come out of prison with a sex offense, actually a lot of violent offenses, in a lot of places, the only place you can go to is to a Christian halfway house. And they're usually evangelical Christians. There's now like almost every program in American prisons are run by fundamentalist Christians because they have defunded everything else and these guys are free. So they have like a captive audience. So that's the good part. They believe in redemption. That's what they're all about is redemption. People are not all bad. At the same time, their whole ideology is one of intolerance. And if you go to that Christian halfway house, you have to swear that your life is going to be centered around Jesus. This is true in Jewish. And there's also evidence that religiosity, especially fundamentalist religiosity, Jews, Muslims, Christians, is tied to more violence, more sexual violence, both as the victim and as the perpetrator. We understand this. These are patriarchal systems. They make children do what they're said, do what they're told, all of the rest of it. Yeah, but at the same time, religion is a huge meaning maker for most people. And so we talked to some people from an organization called Connect that really talks to people, mostly in the Black community, in churches, who are experiencing violence and tries to move through faith 
and through those institutions to find ways to empower those, those survivors and also to allow them to continue to practice the faith that is so, more, so important in their lives. And so you can challenge the patriarchy and challenge the violence and challenge the, the toleration, tolerance of violence within those institutions at the same time as you move through, through, people, through people's faith. Uh, you know, ideologies and, and life and, and, you know, and, and ways of living. Thanks for that. I, I guess I have one more little question. And I, I mean, I'm just kind of interested in book writing too. And then all of a sudden I see this little something different and that your editor allowed, oh no, I guess you have a few boxes, but there's this yeah. little box of a discussion between you yeah, and Erica, and I can just picture that, you know, the two of you are saying, well, I think this, well, I think this, well, we'll just put, we'll just put our dialogue right down in here, this little disagreement. We have several of those throughout the book. I guess it's all about paranoid sexual culture, and mm. there are two two ways to think about that, that righteous paranoia that most women have. Which is paranoia. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you can still alertness, right? And then there's that, there's that, you know, shaming paranoia, paranoid sexual culture. And I hear you in this book, always trying to sort of say, these crimes are horrible. Yes, women are hurt. This is awful. You know, please don't misunderstand me over and over. And yet there's a tension there. And then it was between the two authors, too. I don't know if it's always fun to hear about. Yeah, that. well, you know, this was a collaboration. Erica and I got a Soros grant together to write about sex crime policy and non-criminal responses to sexual violence. And we didn't know each other all that well. She just called me up and said, do you want to do this with me? And so we did do it. But we mostly wrote pieces separately from each other. We collaborated on, I think, one piece. And then we had all this leftover reporting and felt like we should do something with it and make uh, something more, you know, more solid and less long lasting of this grant that we got. Also, I think we began to feel like we hadn't been able to express a feminist um, take on this whole thing, Mm. um, which was really important to both of us. And I really pressed for that to be the theme of the book is that this is a feminist uh, lens on, on what to do about sexual violence, but we didn't agree on everything. Erica is a lesbian. She is, I think, more of an activist than I am. She's not particularly, I mean, she's interested in feelings, but I don't think it's not the central thing. For her, systemic change is much more important than individual change, I think. And she thinks mm. that the individual change comes with the systemic change. And I think, it, I, I mean, this is oversimplifying her position, but that's her focus, is to change systems. While I want that to happen. And I think she's right. I'm just more personally interested in what makes like some men walk into somebody's house and put their hands on a woman and another man say like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not entitled to do that Mm -hmm. or take off a condom or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And also what to do about individuals. So we just had these, we realized we had these differences and it would be much more interesting to put them on the page Um, And we had more of them, but they didn't want us to have too many boxes. To put them on the page also because those conversations we had brought out our own ambivalences. And, you know, I think because they had to be short, we sort of made them more telegraphic that she was A and I was anti-A. But I think we wanted to give the reader an opportunity to be ambivalent as well. And to just kind of personify that in these conversations. I really appreciate your explanation, Judith, because I think it first there's this, I think, perception, especially as we're having these conversations about race and incarceration broadly in our country, that we all have to exactly perfectly agree or nothing can happen, which is not the way that human beings are evolved to work, right? We can have just significant overlap and we can also create goodness. And so I appreciate the way that you guys chose to handle some of those areas of difference and areas of different focus, even though your longer term goal, which is like transforming our current systems is exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, they are the same. And, and Erica also is really, she's a daily activist. She's really deeply involved in activism, anti-racist activism, queer activism. And she 
understands more than anybody how messy that process is. And she relishes it. I mean, she recognizes it. She relishes it. It's, you know, never going to be easy. People disagree. She's much, she's good at doing that. You know, I'm a writer who sits in my own room. I don't really need to like agree with anybody. And so for me, that's what, that's what really emotionally and sort of spiritually she brought to the process is that Mm. really on the ground recognition of how hard these issues are or any political issue. And she's, I don't think either of us is pure. I mean, I think both of us like each other's politics because of that, that ability to be, to, to tolerate ambiguity. So what's a paranoid sexual culture? That <laughs> I think paranoid sexual culture is the one that a guy says something to you at work, like, I like your skirt. And then you feel like he's, sexually harassing you or you know a a man is having a an affair with a younger student who's not his student (laughs) and that's not allowed because he must be you know exercising power over her so so you're not denying that these things exist within a patriarchal kind of system and that they have reverberations or even foundations in you know, sort of problematic power relations, you're saying let's not elevate this to criminal? Or are you really saying, no, those things really, you know, somebody can just say, I like your skirt. And it has, don't think about this other context. You're overreading it. Where are you on that? Well, I think you can think about the context and also enjoy it at the same time. You know, there's patriarchy and patriarchy is a system it's a, it's a complex of systems. And then there's also the very complicated power relations of sex, sex and relationship, which do not just go in one direction. They are not set up in a rigid hierarchy. Men absolutely do have much more power systemically in, in every single way and culturally as well. But women have, have power too, sexually and in other ways. And so, and furthermore, sex is a play of power. Not always, but sometimes. Women have the different privileges to enjoy that that's comment. That's right. Yeah. And actually, and that's what, that was the thing that Erica said was, you know, yeah, you can say that, but the people who always get screwed on this happen to be of color, poorer, and so on. The women who get screwed, who don't get to have that privilege of, right, of some power or whatever it is. Yeah, I get that. I, and I, and again, I don't think criminalizing it is going to do much good or, you know, fining the guy or getting damages from him or certainly canceling him altogether. Don't think those are particularly effective means of accountability holding. And, um, and I also would like those guys to change. But at the same time, I do, I, I probably am more liberal about this, you know, what people can say to each other. You know, nobody grabs my ass anymore and I never liked it in the first place, but I didn't totally dislike people saying nice things to me on <laughs> saying you look beautiful on the street. I didn't like it when people made sucking noises to me. So, you know, each person has their own tastes and and I actually kind of used to enjoy being in Paris and flirting with men on the street. So, you know, but that's me. I don't know if Madeline has one last question. I seem to keep getting one last question. (laughs) No. Based on Judith's last comment, I was just thinking about the time where I studied abroad in Italy and how I chose to respond or not respond in those circumstances. And I think that might be an area of difference between us, Judith, because for me, those feels like, interruptions into my pleasant day yeah, um, yeah. I mean I was used to say when I was young who asked you yeah <laughs> that's my main thing is who asked you I'm thinking about something else no I don't want to smile yeah you know, those kind of things yeah, it's scary it's scary because then the guy can turn crazy you know and get mm-hmm. and get violent and they always say you're a bitch anyway you're ugly blah blah so you can't win on those things oh I agree with you like men uh, on the streets it's a big pain in the ass and can be a lot worse. 
Yeah. And at the same time, I know that's part of certain people's sexual scripts for like almost getting to know each other. When I was living in Boston, I lived in Quincy, which is right next to Wollaston Beach. And I had some uh, conversations with folks who grew up in that area where that was the main meeting spot when you were younger. And it was part of their sexual script to like hit on people that way. And it was really appropriate. And they were able to hear me about how some of that may be based in patriarchy. And so I think all of these issues are so much more complicated than that, because even though I have a preference of like, you know, why are you interrupting my day for this person I was talking to? It was actually a really welcome thing because it was indicating who her potential new romantic partner could be. Right. So I think what you're saying is that we sort of choose the public spaces where we allow sexuality to enter. Mm -hmm. You're talking to a girlfriend at the bar and some other man or woman who's coming onto you would interrupt you and you might welcome it at that moment because you went to the bar to pick somebody up. So what is intrusive? What's public? What's private? Those are their cultural, uh, they change, and they're in contest. Mm-hmm. They're political. Well, I'm going to get to have dinner with you in a couple of weeks, so I can ask some of my further questions then, just for a really weighty dinner party, right? <laughs> About defunding the police, and can the police... Four male partners will have to sit there and listen. Um, there are ten. There are ten calls for action at the end of the book. I mean, people should buy the book, so we don't have to read all of them. But are there any that we haven't touched that you want to add, talk about before we um, say goodbye? Well, I would actually. I, I would flag the one that talks about complicating consent. I think that's the one in which I talk about sexual ethics and ethics of mutuality. That. I think you did that in the one before, the free free sex education. That's yeah. I'm yeah. excited. Yay. Shout out to Sharon. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> but I'm all with you with the complicating consent. Yeah. And in fact, that Muhlenhardt study that I quote is one that you told me about in which these, these researchers saw that people can both, that we, we conflate giving consent and wanting sex and people can give sense, consent and not really want it you know, for other reasons, either, you know, for the relationship or they feel compelled or for one reason, or they might have sex, you know, they might not consent and want sex, you know, because they don't want to get pregnant or they're religious or something. That, and then also, you know, recognition, this idea of mutuality, which is what is sex about? Sex is about listening, listening, giving, being generous, experimenting, like, and you don't want this. I mean, I guess this thing about a paranoid culture, maybe it should be expressed as a transactional culture in which we look at all sex as some kind of exchange of power, exchange of value. You know, you get something, you take something, whereas hopefully a sexual culture is one in which we engage together and we try to work out those kinds of minute and you know, minute to minute power exchanges and power play and manipulation and all the rest of it. But it has to be within a context in which women have enough economic power, social power, you know, power to leave, power to get a good job, all of those things. Because if you don't have that structural equality, you cannot have sexual equality. So, right. I mean, I I often have said to students that sex is a form of play. And I was thinking you have to be free to play but you don't we you don't yeah. yes, right. kids in the in the hardest circumstances right find something or somewhere or someone to play with yeah yeah enslaved people make love and have babies that they want and you know so thank god i mean there's this little little tiny space of play yeah. And that's why I guess I singling out sex is the worst thing that can possibly happen is just so tragic yeah 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 i had one last question which is actually one i'm stealing from you sharon which is what about the children because i think (laughs) what about the children what about the children because i think um (laughs) implicitly we've been talking about more adult survivors um Mm -hmm. when we've been talking about this how do you think about where children victims or survivors fit into all this? How can we attend to their needs within this potentially new system? Children are different and they, and they deserve and we are obligated to give them our protection. We also are obligated to recognize gradually their autonomy. 
And so there's mm-hmm. always the balance between their sexuality, their sexual autonomy, and our need to make sure that they are safe and that they can come to us if they're being hurt. And that, that balance just changes as they get older. The panics about child sexuality are the origin of the sex offense legal regime. The idea that the street is dangerous, that sex is dangerous, that all men are predators. And what the sex offense regime has done is make children less safe by a having this outward focus. And also, I think... Wait, wait, don't uh, go on, because that's a really important point, that what we, were, we, what we are doing to stop child sex abuse isn't actually stopping child sex abuse. Right, and, and I think you in which... You know, sex is always dangerous. Sex is something always to avoid. Sex is something that is bad. Never allows a child to learn not only to say no, but to say yes. What does she really want? How does she, how does she be, you know, a person with some power to say, to speak her mind, to, to seek what she needs, whatever that is. Um, and and also I, that thing you write about. It, it's, and it's authoritarian. And also, if you have an authoritarian system, which is what the carceral system is, it's the same ideology as the one that says, I'm the father and you're going to do what I fucking want. I mean, this is the same thing. These are two, this is a masculinist domination, domination you know, kind of ideology that might makes right or power makes right. And, and I might add that this sort of pr- promotion of the child as innocent kind of, se- you know, is a sexualized vision of the child, too. It um, is. Furthermore, the child sexual innocence is white. It is figured white. Black mm-hmm. children, brown children do not get to be innocent. In fact, you know, literally, it, people look at black and brown children and see them as older and see them as more responsible for mm-hmm. things that they do, even if they're... 10 years old or something, they do not ever get treated like like children, which is the same thing that black women said to white women about, you know, sexual freedom. We don't even get, you know, or about control of our bodies. We don't even get to have the kids we want to have, you know, we want to have our kids safely and, you know, with respect. Um, And so uh, we don't get to be, you know, this idea that, you know, you stay home and you're a housewife and you're, you know, you're frustrated. Black women never got to be that. They were always having to work. So, so again, like looking at this intersectionally. Um, and so the idea of child sexuality is a perpetuation of race of a racist system, which harms children. It harms white children who have to be innocent and every other child who never gets to be innocent. Your question, what about the children answered? Yes. <laughs> Very fully. Well, Drew, this has been fantastic. To Absolutely. Talk to you yeah, about this, one of our more serious and less ranty. <laughs> I really appreciate your style, which is so much less of a rant than my usual style on <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and again, yeah, you've written really the whole book. So glad to do it. It's so nice to meet you, Madeline. Um, nice to meet you too, Judith. Yeah, yeah I hope I hope that um, I know people write a book like this as an act of activism um, because it's there when somebody with some power to make things happen wants some backing to it. And I really hope that, you know, the powers that be out there get a hold of it and bring it to their policy wonk meetings. Um, <laughs> though it's it's a lot of change you're asking for, a whole lot of change. Yeah, but if they made 1% of it, you know, it would, would make a big difference. Yeah. So, um, I mean, at this point with 2020, anything is possible. So let's dream big is my <laughs> philosophy for this year, at least. Right. I mean, it's amazing what's happened with the BLM uprisings. I mean, the, to white people. I mean, it's incredible how much cultural change has happened. So. And you wrote this book before the defund the police uh, um, mantra. We did, except the defund the police mantra was around for 20 years already. (laughs) Before it. I think I went back and I saw that I did a piece about it, I think in 2013 or something. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. And the way that we figured out how to uh, sign off from our sex and ethics podcast is to thank Dan Torres, who does our editing. 
and to uh, say to all of our many listeners, be Be good. (laughs) (laughs) I will not. (laughs) Be kind of good. (laughs) You are good. Thanks for your good work. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.